Hey, hey, everybody, this is Christian Basar again with another episode of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. So I'm continuing. This is another introduction to the series about the history of Russian cities I've been to. But this one will give a little bit, little bit of background to Russia's federal structure. So I feel that it's good to understand a little bit of Russia's federal structure when I'm going to be talking about certain places, certain cities, right? So it's like if you go to Canada, say, if you're talking about Canada and you're talking about the cities you've been to in Canada, you know, sometimes it helps to put it in the context of which province was the city in. You know, I went to Vancouver, that's in British Columbia. I went to Edmonton, that's in Alberta. And, you know, talk a little bit about um, the economies, maybe the history of the province as well, to kind of place that city in that, um, in that province, right? So I want to do the same for the cities that I went to in Russia. So I'm just going to give a bit of background, bit of background into Russia's federal system. So Russia right now is officially known as the Russian Federation, or in Russian would be Rosiskaya Federatsiya, right? So uh, just like other federal countries such as Canada, the United States, and Germany, there's a main federal government. In Russia's case, it's based in the capital of Moscow, and then there are other uh, constituents, constituent uh, groups underneath, group uh, groups and regions underneath, underneath that, with their own uh, forms of local government. So there are two two levels: the federal and the local. In uh, in Canada, we have provinces and territories, and in the United States, we have the states. While in Russia, you'll often see these these other subjects known as federal subjects, right? So the federal system can be seen as having, having some background in the Soviet period. So when the Soviet Union existed, by the end of its, its end in 1991, there were 15 Soviet socialist republics within the USSR. So <laughs> I want to break this down a little bit because there are lots of acronyms. So a Soviet Socialist Republic, or SSR, 15 of these made up what was the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. So USSR, the large, the country was the USSR, and there were 15 of these constituent republics within that. Right? Okay. So, and the there were various ones. There was the Russian Soviet Federal Socialist Republic. RSFSR. So this is where much of the power was concentrated. Of course, this is where Moscow was. This was the capital of the Soviet Union, and so and it was also the the largest largest uh, SSR within the Soviet Union as well. But there were also other ones. There was the Ukrainian SSR, the Belarusian, the Kyrgyz, the Estonian, and and others that were that made part of that were part of the Soviet Union, and. Within the Russian SSR, there were autonomous republics, known as autonomous Soviet socialist republics, such as the Tatar ASSR. Okay, so here we go. So I'll just break it down a little once again. So you have the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. This is the this is the country itself. Then within you had Soviet Socialist Republics SSRs. So that was Russia, Ukraine, Estonia. And then within the Russian Soviet Federal Socialist Republic, RSFSR, 
you had these autonomous republics or autonomous Soviet socialist republics, right? So USSR, SSRs, and then within Russia, ASSR, right? So, um, so I hope that makes sense. So that's just just uh, just kind of the background. That was the Soviet system. That's how that system was basically like a 30, 36,000 foot in the air view. That's how the the system was and how the USSR was was divided and how it was how it was how its various constituents were grouped together. So, as the Soviet Union was uh, breaking apart in the early 90s, there were two things that happened. So the first one is that the Soviet socialist republics, so again, Ukraine, the you, the Ukrainian one, the Russian one, the Kyrgyz one, the Tajik one, all of those became their own, their own countries. So that's why we have modern Russia, we have modern Ukraine, we have modern Belarus as all separate, separate countries. And then the other thing, within the Russian Republic, the ASSRs, remember the Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republics, such as Tatarstan and um, and Bashkortostan, they declared themselves to be republics within the Russian Republic, which was now being reformed as the Russian Federation. So the Russian, the the federal structure within the old Soviet Russian Republic was largely in in basic form preserved in the new Russian Federation after the Soviet Union's collapse. Okay, so now we move forward to December 25th, 1933 with signing of the Constitution of the Russian Federation. So it, it includes important points about Russia's federal structure. So Article 5.1 reads like this. The Russian Federation consists of republics, territories, regions, cities of federal importance, an autonomous region and autonomous areas, equal subjects of the Russian Federation. So again, this is pointing to two levels of government. Again, of central federal central authority, which governs the whole country in Moscow. And then we have subjects of various types underneath that. So we have federal government and subjects. So Article 76.4 uh, talks about some of the division of, of government responsibilities between the federal government in Moscow and the, the subjects. So the constitution there says that residual powers, and so these are areas of responsibility that aren't defined under federal or joint federal subject jurisdiction, are under the jurisdiction of the subjects. So some of the ones that are under federal responsibility. So this is foreign relations, uh, Russia's foreign relations with other countries, the military, the, deter the determination of inter internal borders, federal budget, and so on. And then ones that the federal and the subjects uh, share are things such as disaster mitigation, right? So Article 76.4 of the Constitution says that anything that doesn't fit into these two categories that are under the federal or under joint subject federal control those are under the jurisdiction or the responsibility of the subjects, right? And so what happens as well that the, the subjects have their own, own rights as well. And so there's another document, the Russian Federation Treaty of 1992. And in Article 
the it states that within the limits of the Constitution and the Federation Treaty, re republics are able to establish their own relations with other federal subjects and also to independently form their own foreign trade relations. And certain federal subject responsibilities are defined in Article 2 of the Federation Treaty, such as sports, upholding citizen rights, uh, protection of traditional ethnic ways of life. And so now I kind of want to get into the details of the different types. So remember what I mentioned before, there are, uh, there are republics, there are regions, and cities of federal importance, and, and so on. So the first one I want to look at, these are, these are the ones with the most, the most, the most autonomy. Um, and so these are the republics within Russia, or in Russian called the Respubliki. So republics are divided primarily along ethnic lines, um, you know, in theory. So you have Tatarstan for the Tatar people, Bashkortostan for the Bashkirs, Chechnya for the Chechens, and so on. And so I visited, I have visited um, a number of republics. I went to the Republic of Mordovia when I went to Saransk. I went to the Republic of Karelia when I was in Petrozavodsk. And I went to the Republic of Tatarstan when I was in Kazan. And also I was in, when I was in Ufa, I was in the Republic of Bashkortostan. So there are some, some kind of funny, strange things that happen when we're talking about uh, republics and ethnicities. So uh, these are using uh, uh, percentages from 2002, so quite a while ago. Uh, but still, they, they point to an interesting, interesting fact. So again, in theory, republics are divided among ethnic lines. But in 2002, in the, Kare in the Karelian Republic, around 75% of the population were ethnically Russian, not Karelian. In Mordovia, that number was about 60%. 60% of people in Mordovia were Russians, not Mordovans. And, and also, so, so that's an interesting thing. So it works in theory, but you know, they're all, it's not necessarily Republic of Tatarstan is mostly Tatar, whatever, right? And so this is what makes republics very, very different. And so in addition to the idea that they're divided by ethnicity, um, but a, a real key difference is that each republic can establish and uphold its own constitution, according to the Federation Treaty. And republics thus also have the responsibility to protect national minorities within them. And so, and in the Russian constitution, Article 68.2, it's connected with this last point. Republics also have the legal right to establish their own state languages, both Russian, which is the official language throughout the whole country, and also the local language used by the um, by the ethnic group with, that that republic is meant to represent. So, for example, again in Ufa, the capital of the Republic of Bashkortostan, I saw signs in both Russian and Bashkir, the local ethnic language. And the same in Kazan. So there was there were signs in Russian, but also in the Tatar language. And Tatar and Bashkir are similar. They're both Turkic languages, but they are different languages. So, but because they were in different republics, that's why they use the different languages. And so the situation with republics changed a little bit with 
the creation of a Crimean Republic. So after the Crimean crisis of 2014, the Crimean Republic, Crimean Peninsula was declared to be a Russian Republic. And so Russian, Ukrainian, and Crimean Tatar were made the official, official languages. And so this idea of ethnic emphasis, uh, so we, this also has a Soviet background. So the Soviet Union's leadership wanted to grant a form of recognition, so to speak, to the different nationalities within the former Russian Empire. Why? So communist ideology had this idea that just like capitalism, you know, capitalism was seen as inevitable stage of human economic evolution. And communism would eventually go to socialism and then eventually go to full communism. That was the communist <laughs> eschatology, I suppose. But so just like capitalism was an inevitable stage of creating this human utopia, nationality was also seen as part of the inevitable journey of human social development. Right? And so during Vladimir Lenin's time, it was also believed that encouraging nationalities would increase class conflict, bringing communism closer to a reality. So, in a way, you know, you hear of the, the theory in, among religious circles of someone trying to force God's hand into doing something. So instead here, the, this idea is the communists are trying to force history's hand. So by recognizing local ethnicities, there, there's the idea of creating class conflict and let it, let it brew, let it go let it grow, and then eventually leads to communism. So this, this was seen as part of a, a way to encourage that stage and to you know, keep, the, keep the gears of history flowing to go forward into full communism. And so also the idea was to turn the, uh, the USSR into a multi-ethnic state. And another important, probably in a more simple or easier, to, <laughs> perhaps an easier to explain, idea in communism too is that communist ideology had an international focus so it wasn't meant to be dominated by one group at least in theory right so this idea of of creating opportunities for other ethnic groups you know we are we're we're supposed to be at peace with each other you know to lead towards communism we have the common goal of destroying capitalism and going forward to communism so remember that the motto of the soviet union was so, workers of the world unite. So, within the Soviet system, how exactly was this, was this implemented? So, local ethnic groups were given a form of recognition by having their own territories and also lo local councils or Soviets and also given recognition by, through the official languages and so on. And the Communist Party would direct this national recognition, just also like it had helped direct workers' unions and so on on the economic front. So nationality was still managed by the Communist Party. So recognition, also there was recognition of local cultures, and there was some attempts to develop a local language curriculum. And there, was, there, was, there were attempts to, to reverse the image of the old Russian Empire as a colonial power demo dominated from Russian Moscow. So we were in socialism now. So there was the hope to get rid of the imperial image. And there were some efforts to reverse Russian migration into, uh, into these ethnic areas. But 
you know, there's a lot of, of, of literature to look at here, but there's, you know, mixed results on mixed, mixed practice. So there were some problems and also resentment from Russian party members. So Joseph Stalin, though being a Georgian and not a Russian, he, over time, he helped rehabilitate the image of ethnic Russians in this ethnically diverse socialist country. And this happened especially after World War II when Russian wartime achievements were emphasized. If you want more details on this, I would recommend that you read uh, Terry Martin's article, An Affirmative Action Empire, which is in the book A State of Nations, which is edited by Ronald Grigor Suni and Terry Martin. So now returning to the Russian uh, the modern Russian context. So there are also other subjects that are grouped together. So, and they have lesser statuses than republics. And so remember that republics were the ones that had the right to have their own official language and their own constitutions. Um, but also, underneath the republics, there are some vague differences between the between those types. So the research done by the European Parliamentary Research Service, or the EPRS, um, mentions these vague differences. And when I looked at the Federation Treaty of 1992 and the Russian Constitution of 1993, I didn't see much distinction between the different types of federal subjects. All subjects, republics and the other ones I'll talk about here, all had the general responsibilities for taking care of local governance and making sure their laws did not contradict Russia's constitution or otherwise cause violation. So, so some of the differences between the, it's easier to see the difference between the republics and the lower ones, the lower types, but then there were also the lower types, the differences between those were, you know, that was a little bit harder to distinguish. But, so we'll go through them. And so one of these types of regions, which is the most common, is oblasty. So oblasty, which into English translates as regions. And so there are many oblasts in, in, uh, in Russia. So for example, there's the Kirov Oblast, the Tembov Oblast, and the Volgograd Oblast, all, of th all three of which I've, I've also been to. And so they're different from republics in that they have no constitutions of their own. And they also don't have the ethnic focus as do the republics. And so when you look at the federation treaty that delineates responsibilities between the federal government and its subjects, there's no clause there about national minorities and oblasts as there is with the republics. And so now the third category, they are called krais, krais or territories. And there's various ones within Russia as well, such as Krasnoyarsk and Perm. And the word Krai mean, comes from the word edge or border. And they're essentially the same as oblasts, but they're just not dot and name. And so the, the word Krai comes from the fact that these subjects used to be part of Russia's old Russia's borderlands. So they were part of the edge. So the Krasnoyarsk Krai was the edge, so the border of what was Russia at that time. So then the name just stuck as the Russian Empire expanded. So now the fourth type of division is called the Autonomous Oblast, or the Avtonaya Oblast in Russian. And so this one's very interesting. There's only one. The Jewish Autonomous Oblast in southeastern Russia on the border with China. 
So, and this one, again, remember I was talking about the republics and how the a lot of the republics, which were meant to be homelands of other uh, ethnic groups, a lot of them, a lot of the people living there were Russian. This is also very interesting. The In the Jewish autonomous oblast, Jews make up only about 1% of the population. So, <laughs> so it's a very, very interesting uh, fact there. So now we have the fifth division, the Autonomia Okruge, so or the autonomous districts. So these are ones such as the Nyanets Autonomous District and the Khantimansi Autonomous District. So these ones are kind of like republics in a way that they are named after the local titular ethnic groups, so such as the Khantimansi and the Nyanets people. All right, so. But unlike the republics, some of these autonomous districts are sub subsections of other subjects. For, so, for example, the Nyanets uh, Autonomous District is part of the Archangel Oblast. And the autonomous districts also don't have the ability to form their own constitutions. And finally, we have the sixth division, the federal cities. So these are cities that are treated like separate regions or cities of federal importance. So the uh, up until 2014, there were two, Moscow and St. Petersburg. And then since 2014, Sevastopol on the Crimean Peninsula was a third federal city. So there we are. We have six types of federal subjects within the Russian Federation. So we have republics or respublike. We have Oblasti or regions. We have krais or territories or edge. Uh, Autonomia oblasti, the autonomous regions. We have the, uh, which is again one, just one. Uh, Autonomia okruge, autonomous districts, and the federal cities. So, how does this work politically? So there is the Federation Council, which is the upper house of the Russian Federal Assembly. So again, so the Russian Federation, like many other federations, such as the United States and Canada, they have the government is a bicameral system. So there are two houses. There's one known as the upper house and the lower house. So the upper house is the Federation Council and the State Duma is the lower elected house. So, according to the Russian Constitution's Article 95.2, each federal subject, republics, um, okrugs, and oblasti, krais, etc., each one sends two members to the Federation Council, one from the executive branch of its local government and one from its legislative branch. And so, during elections in the federal subjects, and this, these elections change the one in charge of the executive branch. So, for example, the republics, such as Chechnya, are run by a, a leader called the president. So, when these elections happen, candidates running for the position of the head of the elective branch choose a list of three members to represent that federal subject on the Federation Council. And so, if that candidate is successfully elected, one of these three on his list, on his or her list, will be chosen as the subject's executive branch representative. And then remember that the Constitution says that the subject will then send a member of the legislative branch or the parliament or Duma. And so what happens then is that the subject's parliament will select the representative here 
and send it to the Federation Council. So how did all this play out in the history of post-Soviet Russia? So federal control over the subjects was fairly weak in the early 1990s. When they were trying to negotiate the Federation Treaty in 1992, at first, two of the former autonomous Soviet socialist republics refused to sign. These were Tatarstan and the Chechen English ASSRs. And Chechnya was even able to declare independence in 1994, and this led to the First Chechen War. And regional governors, even those who were, were not within the republics, were able to maintain a lot of regional power in defiance of the central federal authorities in Moscow. And so the central government was able to assert itself, assert control, by with with through the Federation Council, which allowed communication between Moscow and the subjects. And the Chechen War was a terrible conflict. And uh, even though the first one went really badly for the Russian forces, and then there was, you know, kind of calmed down for a little bit until the Second Chechen War, which started in the year 2000, the the war kind of acted as a deterrent for any rest of rest of subject. And then, um, at, at the very beginning, local electors were, or local governors were elected. But after, terrorist attack, after a terrorist attack in September 2004 in North Ossetia, legislation was passed in December of that year to appoint governors instead. However, eight years later, in 2012, uh, gubernial elector elections were restored. So now, local governors can be elected rather than be appointed. And there was another way that Moscow was able to reassert control. Uh, this was through the federal districts, which were created in May 2000, when President Vladimir Putin ordered the establishment of the federal okrugs, or federal districts. And there's a few of them. So there's the Northwest, the Central, Southern, North Caucasian, Volga, Ural, Siberian, Far Eastern, and since 2014, the Crimean. So the heads of these districts are federally appointed. And so they act as a kind of federal watchdog, allowing federal oversight over the subject um, republics and oblasts and so on. And so the districts are meant to check, are the local subjects' laws consistent with that of the Federation? And it also helps facilitate Moscow's control over the FSB, and also the other nationally crucial organizations. And Putin was able to create these federal districts after the economic and political chaos of the 1990s. So this was when Russia was finally recovering economically uh, from the, the situation of the previous decade. And also Putin, uh, according to Philip Hansen and Michael J. Bradshaw, was more direct and more commanding than his predecessor, Boris Yeltsin. So this situation, the improved economics, and also his personality gave Putin more clout and control over the situation, allowing him um, to, to reassert control, uh, federal control over the uh, constituent uh, subjects of the Russian Federation. And so finally, one, one uh, other division I want to go over briefly is the 12 economic regions. So the economic regions are, there are 12 of them, and they facilitate economic development, and they're divided by resource and economic potential, so meant to concentrate resources. 
And so there's a few of them which are uh, the central, which includes Moscow, Tula, etc. And these, the main industries here are textile and mining. There's the central black earth, which includes the Tambov Oblast and others, and which is uh, focused around agriculture. East Siberia, which ha uh, such as Tuva, Irkutsk, and there's a lot of mining there. There's also Kaliningrad. There's a lot of tourism here and fishing and automobile building. West Siberian, there's Omsk and Tomsk, and there's a lot of metallurgy and machinery here. And so I'll go for a few more. The Volga Vyatka economic district, agriculture, chemical, uh, chemical industries and engineering. And so this district includes Kirov and Nizhny Novgorod oblasts. The Northwest includes St. Petersburg. So there's coal and other minerals mined here, but also St. Petersburg is a huge tourist center. Uh, Volga, which includes the Penza Oblast, has, and also Volgograd, is, uh, its economy is built on agriculture, minerals, and hydro dams. The Urals, which is, includes the Bashkortostan Republic, has a lot of machinery and minerals. And then there's the Far Eastern, which includes Vladivostok, which has a lot of fishing and hunting. And there is the Northern Economic District, the Economic Division, which includes Karelia. And finally, there's the North Caucasus, which includes Chechnya, Krasnodar, and its main entries there include gas, coal, and agriculture. So there we are. So that is an introduction to Russia's federal structure. And I wanted to talk about that because when I'm going to be talking about future uh, cities in future, I do want to talk not just about the cities, but also kind of talk, but also talk about the, um, the subject that that city is in as well. So for example, the first city of the series is Kazan, and it's within the Republic of Tatarstan. So Instead of just and when talking about Kazan, I'm going to be talking a lot about Tatars and Republic of Tatarstan as well. I want to focus on the city as much as I can, but I will be bringing it kind of kind of bringing in the whole context of the republic itself as well. So, and one of the one of the confusing things if you're if you're not really familiar with how Russia is structured and so on, you might be a little bit confused of hearing. Okay, so the, here's Russia, here's a country. I get that. But then suddenly, I'm talking about a Republic of Bashkortostan or a Republic of Tatarstan within Russia. But we think of republics as being their own countries. Many of us think of it that way. So, so I wanted to kind of clear that up. So just kind of a quick review. You have the Russian Federation. And within that, and so you, it's led by the federal government in Moscow. And then underneath that level of government, you have the subjects. So you have, and you have different types. You have the republics, you have the oblasts, you have the autonomous okrugs, you have the krais, and so on, right? And so when I'm going to be talking about the Republic of Tatarstan, this is what it is. It's its its, its own group, but it's subject to Moscow. And it has, and the Republic of Tatarstan has a number of rights, such as establishing its own official language and uh, having its own constitution, right? But then when I talk about the Tambov, uh, the city of Tambov, which is in the Tambov Oblast, it, the Tambov Oblast does not have some of these rights, but it's still a part of the Russian Federation. So I hope that will clear up some of the, some of this, uh, confusion here. 
And uh, so thanks again for listening to the podcast. And so I'm still continuing to work on the on the podcast as well. But, you know, as they say, life goes on. And uh, so I'll be working on that as quickly as I can. And uh, but I'm certainly looking for as always, I'm certainly looking forward to doing more episodes. And thanks again for listening. And we'll catch you on the next episode. All right. Talk to you guys later.